Well, today we are continuing our 13-week sermon series through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. As we've said every week, the Apostle John was likely an old man by the time he wrote this letter, and he was speaking to an audience, he's writing to an audience, that he repeatedly calls his little children. As John was writing this letter, see, there was a, a seismic shift taking place as the kingdom of God expanded beyond the borders of Israel. In the midst of this shift, the early Christians were facing persecution from the outside and division from the inside. And so John offers a number of different reminders and encouragements to these churches in the midst of crisis. As we saw yet again last week, love is one of the central themes of 1 John. But today, we will turn our attention to the topic of faith and bearing faithful witness to the identity of Jesus Christ as the Messiah and Son of God. So as John closes out his letter, his frequent use of the word love gives way to a frequent use of the word faith. And of course, it it follows from everything that he said previously. If the church is going to be a loving community, if the church is going to be a loving community, we need to have a right understanding of the testimony concerning Jesus. We need to know and believe and preserve that one true gospel. Now, before we jump into the text, I I want to address something. Um, Within our passage today, we are faced with one of the most infamous textual variations in the New Testament, meaning there has been scholarly debate over the centuries concerning this passage, in verses 7 and 8 in particular. For there are three that testify the Spirit and the water, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now, um, to be clear, Unless you are holding a King James Version, the textual variation is probably not actually in your Bible. And that's because the evidence for that variation is thin and unconvincing. It was most likely added to John's epistle hundreds of years later. Um, It's not found in the earliest manuscripts, and the early church fathers never mention it. Okay, so, so modern translations have simply removed it. So I'm not going to bore you with all the details, okay? Uh, But if you're interested in seeing the variation, you can look at the KJV. Um, I do think, though, this provides a good opportunity for us to reflect upon what we mean when we talk about the authority of Scripture. If God is sovereign over the biblical text, why did he allow for textual variations over the centuries? Why not just record John's first epistle on a magical parchment that could never decay and never be altered? We believe that the Bible is the word of God, not just just the ideas of the Bible, but the biblical text itself as written. We believe the text itself was inspired by God, which means that it is reliable and authoritative. But if the text is disputed, if, if variations exist, how can we be confident that what we have is actually the word of God? I have a couple thoughts. First of all, it's worth noting that there ought to have been many, many more textual variations than there actually are. Relative to other ancient texts, the biblical manuscripts are clear and consistent to a truly miraculous degree. The New Testament is nearly 2,000 years old, and for 1,500 years, each and every manuscript was copied out by hand. 
And yet, there are only a handful of significant textual variations. There is broad scholarly consensus on the vast majority of those variations, and not one of those variations jeopardizes Christian doctrine. That's truly astonishing. Compare that to Shakespeare's plays, which are only 400 years old. Scholars are significantly less confident about the reliability of Shakespeare. We have zero original manuscripts of Shakespeare. And each and every play contains dozens and dozens of textual variations, many of which actually change the meaning of the text. But that's, that's the science of textual criticism. I'm going to set that aside for a second. Textual variations are consistent with the way God works. This is how God has always interacted with humanity. He does not bypass the created order in, in, in order to provide, to communicate a purely divine message. He engages in the midst of the, the messiness and the complexity of actual human history. God has always entrusted his infallible word to fallible people. Now, we, we may question that decision. We may not like that he did it that way. But I do think we have to recognize and acknowledge that he is wise beyond our understanding. This, this Bible, the Bible in the pew in front of you, the Bible on your smartphone, that is the vehicle through which God has determined to reveal himself to you and to reveal his plans to you. Not just the undisputed portions, but all of it. And like everything else in the Christian life, trusting the Bible really does come down to an act of faith. When the word of God appears untrustworthy, we trust it. But that's not, that's not blind trust. It's not willful ignorance. We are, we are still called to exercise judgment and discernment, to compare the manuscripts, to discard what was not original to the text. That is part of the process. In God's infinite wisdom, that is part of the process. If he decides to lead us and guide us with manuscripts that are slightly less than pristine, then we have to humbly trust that he knows what he's doing. We have to conclude that he must want us to grapple with the scriptures. He must, he must want us um, to mature through that process. Okay, let's jump in. Verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. So, um, that should be clear enough. Uh, I'm kidding. What is John talking about? What's he talking about? I think this passage is a wonderful case study in the importance of understanding the Old Testament and the importance of interpreting the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. The imagery used by John in these verses is is profoundly loaded imagery, biblically speaking. When John refers to water and blood and spirit, there are a number of Old Testament echoes in the background. Perhaps we think about Genesis chapter 1. The world was created as the Spirit hovered over the waters. Creation emerged by water and Spirit. 
But of course, John uses that, that third image, right? Blood. So perhaps we think of the Passover, the Exodus. We have the blood of the lamb. We have the water of the Red Sea. And we have the spirit leading the people by cloud and fire. And so I, I think there are, there are numerous, various, relevant passages in play. But for our purposes today, I want to focus on two key events in the life of Jesus. His baptism and his crucifixion. The ministry of Jesus was actually bookended by two baptisms, according to him. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was baptized by John the baptizer. And as he was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And so there we have water and spirit. What, but again, what, what about this reference to blood? What about blood? Well, Jesus described his crucifixion as a baptism. We saw that in our reading from the Gospel of Mark. Speaking of his death, Jesus says, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And so again, the ministry of Jesus is bookended by two baptisms. The first is associated with water and spirit, and the second is associated with water and spirit and blood. So so think back to Genesis chapter 1. The world was created as the spirit hovered over the waters. Creation emerged from water and spirit. But that was the old creation. The new creation emerges by water and spirit and blood. Let's read from the Gospel of John, chapter 19. Jesus is on the cross, and he says, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And then... One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Spirit, water, and blood. Creation emerges by spirit, water, and blood. The new creation emerges by spirit, water, and blood, as the Son of God is crucified. So so think about this from the perspective of a first century Jew. Okay, the, the idea of a Messiah born of water and spirit sounds great. That sounds great. Water baptism, the spirit descending, the father speaking words of blessing from the heavens. That, that was all very much compatible with Jewish expectations concerning the Messiah. But the cross was very different. There was no descending spirit. The skies were dark and silent. Jesus is crying out in anguish, forsaken by the very same Father who blessed him in the beginning. This is not at all compatible with Jewish expectations concerning the Messiah. Water and spirit, good to go. Water, spirit, and blood, no. You see, John is proclaiming the gospel of a bloody, crucified Messiah. And that was utterly scandalous. In the words of Paul, it was a major stumbling block for the Jews. But make no mistake, blood is essential. Blood is essential to the true gospel. Without blood, the good news is no longer good news. As it says in verse 9, this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. And verse 11, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You see, when Jesus was crucified, it wasn't just blood and water that came flowing out of him. It it was also the Spirit. The Spirit of life came flowing out of him. Once again, John chapter 19, Jesus bowed his head and gave up his Spirit. This verb, to give up, means to hand over. means to hand over. So when Jesus gave up the ghost so to speak. That's where that phrase comes from. When Jesus gave up his spirit, he wasn't just forfeiting his spirit. He was bestowing his spirit. When Jesus was crucified, water and blood and spirit came flowing out of him. And we are the recipients. We are the beneficiaries. We are those who have received the spirit that Jesus handed over on the cross. And the spirit that Jesus gives to us is life, eternal life. And what does that life look like? As those who have received the spirit of Christ, what what should we expect life to look like now? Well, we need to remember, we follow a Messiah who came by water and blood. Water and blood. The Christian life is full of wonderful and refreshing times where we enjoy the sheer grace and blessing of God being poured out upon us. In other words, the Christian life is full of water. What we're doing right now is water from the Lord. But as followers of a bloody Messiah, we are also called to bear witness even unto death. And just as Jesus laid down his life for his friends, so we look for opportunities to do the same on a daily basis. And so, so the Christian life is not, not just water. Often, the Christian life is blood. Daily, the Christian life is blood. Last year, I, I had the joy of teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, and many of you participated in that class, and I I think Ecclesiastes taps into what it means to live the good life. Because when John talks about eternal life, he's not just talking about the duration of our lives. He's also talking about the quality of our lives. He's not just talking about life everlasting. He's talking about life abundant. And life abundant does not mean water, 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 and water all the time. Life abundant means coming to grips with the blood. It's not just about finding joy in the good things. It's about finding joy in everything. Finding true joy in the spirit means finding joy in the water and joy in the blood and joy in everything in between. It's about following Jesus on the good days and following Jesus on the bad days. That's what we mean when we talk about rootedness, which is, which is one of the key values for our church, rootedness. We want, people to, we want to be people who love a good party and can engage with a good party. But we also want to be people who can sit with a friend in their sorrow and grief. Both water and blood. I think this is what it means to faithfully follow the Messiah and Son of God. This is the testimony we have received, 
And this is the example according to which we are seeking to exercise and to live out our faith, both water and blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving your son to the world for our sake. For inviting us, for for adopting us into your family. We proclaim this morning that your testimony is true. Your testimony is also beautiful. We entrust ourselves to you. Jesus, you, you came by blood, not by water only. We thank you for your courage. We thank you for your faithfulness in, in the face of death. A death you did not deserve, but we did. And Holy Spirit, please make us faithful bearers of this testimony. Faithful witnesses to the truth of the gospel. A gospel of both water and blood. So empower us to walk faithfully through the blood, not not just the water. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.